Hello and welcome to the History of Vikings. Before I introduce today's guest, I have two very important things to tell you. Actually, three very important things to tell you. First off, if you enjoy the History of Vikings, then do me a favor and write me a review. The best thing that you can do to help out my podcast is to write me a review because that actually helps more people to find the podcast, which would be awesome. Uh, secondly, I would love to hear your feedback. So if you have any good episode ideas, uh, you know a guest that I should have on the show, uh, feel free to contact me as I would be delighted to hear from you. The easiest way to get in touch with me is via my email address, which is noah at thehistoryofvikings.com. Again, that's noah at thehistoryofvikings.com. And my third announcement is that I will be releasing a YouTube channel. So when this episode is released, uh, when you will be listening to it, the YouTube channel will actually be out by then. So what you can do is you can just go into YouTube and search the history of Vikings. And uh, I have something very special prepared for you there. So I do hope you will head over to YouTube and check out our awesome YouTube channel. But today I'm joined by a remarkable gentleman who runs a prolific Norse history blog called Fjorn's Hall. Joining me today is, of course, the man behind the blog, Fjorn the Skald. And on his blog, you will find everything from Old Norse detailed analysis of the sagas uh, and Norse myth as presented in the primary sources. But I'm very excited for today's episode because we haven't really dove into the sagas ourselves here, here on the History of Vikings, but rather we've hinted at them uh, and referenced them with various guests. But of course, the saga that we will be discussing today is the saga of the Volsungs, perhaps the most influential saga of them all. But I'm very excited to talk to Fjorn about the sagas today. So Fjorn, thank you so much for coming on the History of Vikings today. Oh, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Yeah, well, it's an absolute honor to have you here. And I have to tell you, I've been referencing your blog quite extensively in preparation for the YouTube channel and my uh, normal sort of Viking history uh, addictive habits. So thank you so much for creating that. That's just, and I do implore people listening to go check that out. Honestly, uh, the blog is called Fjorn's Hall again, and I'll put a link to it in the description and uh, you will just find so much good stuff on there and feel free to comment on some of the blog posts as well. Join the discussion. It's really, we love it when folks like you get connected and contribute to the conversation. But uh, you know, Fjord, we're going to be talking about the saga of the Volsungs today, uh, which is very exciting. And I read this saga a few years ago for the first time, and I remember being just absolutely enamored by the just the vibrant characters and the gripping storyline of this saga. It's really there's just so much good stuff in here. There's aspects of Norse myth in here, heroic, legendary characters, but uh, perhaps for for those of us who are not as familiar with the saga of the Volsungs, or even maybe the, the sagas in general, um, could you just sort of give us a, a brief introduction to the saga of the Volsungs? What is the saga of the Volsungs all about? I most certainly may give you an introduction. So the, it's Icelandic and Old Norse name is Volsunga Saga, and it was written by an anonymous Icelander sometime during the 13th century. Um, it actually belongs to a literary genre known as the Fornaldasogur, or which means the saga of ancient times, but we often just call it them legendary sagas in English. These sagas, as you said, are they frequently contain elements from both traditional lore 
and historical memory, which were passed down for generations by uh, scalds or poets using oral storytelling. Um, these sagas take place in a distant heroic age that was filled with great warriors, legendary kings, and mythological figures. Parts of this saga can actually be found in the Eddas, such as the Prose Edda within the Skaldic Diction section after Gilvaginning, as well as several poems in the Poetic Edda. I mean, I think there's like 13 or more, um, which will actually likely serve as source material for our unknown author. But while this saga does contain old lore, I do have to give my uh, academic warning label to the saga, just because that's what I have to do. Even though it, it refers to real historical events, which actually take place between the 4th and 5th century, uh, it's important to remember that this saga was actually written in this form hundreds of years later, and it came to us through the filter of this author who was writing, pretty much reshaping this material for his 13th century Icelandic audience. So we have to remember how the stories presented to us was meant to agree with the interests of their audience and the concerns that they had. So the story and the meaning that gets put into that story really reflects the society of the, the writer rather than the material that it claims to represent. So now, uh, and I guess this is just sort of a more general question when discussing the sagas, but are these um, oral histories that they would have perhaps told around a great bonfire, the Vikings under the um, aurora uh, illuminating the, the night sky on some cold, uh, misty night uh, up in Norway? Or are these things that were, you know, not written down till hundreds of years after they were originally composed? Well, as romantic as that sounds, I actually think we can actually have some truth in that because the, well, maybe not under the Aurora Borealis as much, <laughs> but there were definitely poets in the halls of great chieftains, which they would usually praise the deeds of them. And this is probably a story that came from one of the historical families that lived back, probably the Volsungs. The memory of that family and the story gets passed down through generation, generation, and it's retold in these halls. And it, it does have that oral connection, and it was told by the Vikings back then. But it also did get some written forms. Like, I did mention that this saga was written in the 13th century. But there is actually a runestone in Sweden, which we just I think we just call the Rasmundstone, that was erected sometime around the year 1000, that actually records some of the tale. The runes themselves don't. Tell, talk the tale, but uh, they reference the memory of someone who passed away. Around the image, the, the runes actually take the form of the dragon that takes that is in this story, and it shows different scenes from the story. So this actually has been both oral and shows up on several runestones, and eventually it makes its way into this saga form once the Icelanders were really putting their thoughts into pen and paper and making a lot of literature. Wow, fascinating. Fascinating. Yeah. So like you said, we can actually see, uh, and of course I have seen this on the internet myself as I have never been to the places, but we can actually see um, sort of the imagery of the sagas at work on various picture stones as well, which is super exciting. But I suppose, you know, we sort of gave an introduction to the saga, which is awesome, but I suppose next it would only be natural to introduce some of the key characters who are really an exciting uh, assortment of all different kinds of folks. Of course, uh, the the chief of these characters uh, being Volsung, who is the, you know, the, um, the sort of patriarch of the entire saga, whom uh, the rest of the, the main characters are descended. And uh, I'm sure you'll get into this as well, but it's interesting to note that while uh, the name of the 
very first lead character is Volsung. It's also Volsung is also the the family name of the rest of the characters. So thus the the Volsungs. So um yeah, if if you would, why don't you just introduce us to uh, some of the the many exciting characters that we see throughout the the saga. I definitely will. So for the first part, well, I think it'd be easier to just take it in two halves. So the first section really is that mythical, mythological foundation mixed with that heroic legend. And in this section, our major characters are actually Odin, Volsung, King Sigurd, Sigmund and Signy, Sigurd, Regan, and Falvnir. So before we get into all of those, I do want to start off. We have mentioned Volsung, and he is the third, I think the third member in a line of family descended from Odin himself. So the saga starts off with a man named Sigi, who's not really important, but he's the first member of this family that descends from Odin. He's actually named as the son of Odin. And then Odin himself actually helps these family members through trouble by either giving them victory in battle providing them with equipment such as ships, weapons, you name it, or helping them conceive children when they can't. So he helps pre- uh, preserve the family line and keep it going. And eventually we finally do get the Volsung. But what's interesting, and you did mention correctly that the family gets their name from him, but interestingly enough in this saga, he hardly plays a role. He's kind of like the, the background, because when Sigmund comes into the picture, his son, he kind of takes all the glory and Volsung just kind of sits in the back, chilling, the old king who just kind of does his thing in the hall, but doesn't actually do a lot of awesome fighting like we'd expect him to. There's sort of, and for those who haven't read the saga, and I suppose even those who have, there's sort of this expectation is one of the great attributes of Volsung, um, who, like you said, isn't, I mean, he's important to the saga, but he's he doesn't really engage in much discussion with folks or anything like that. He doesn't play a, a huge uh, part as far as his uh, engagement with other characters, but there's really this attribute of strength to him. And in his descendants as well, you know, the, the Volsung family, there's this expectation of strength. And because you're descended from Volsung, thus his descendants have these great attributes of strength and are expected to have great attributes of strength. And I suppose as the, the story progresses and we hear of, of Odin and his you know son and, and Volsung and the descendants and, and that whole thing, um, then as it gets into it, you know, Volsung, I believe if you'd like to touch on this, made some interesting promises. And I suppose this really hits on his uh, chief attribute of strength. Uh, you know, when he was talking to his, his mother who... Um, I believe it. She actually was pregnant with him for six years before she actually oh, yeah. um, <laughs> gave birth to him. And even then he was actually cut out of her. So he uh, is, is brought into the world in a very strong way to to begin with. So if you'd like to just touch on that and we can go from there. Well, that's actually something uh, that's typical with heroic literature like this is when you have that miraculous birth. And I think to give that little bit of context, um, the reason why his birth was miraculous is because the person before Volsung, Volsung's dad is named Rerir, and he married, his wife couldn't conceive a child. So Odin actually had to send a wish maiden, which is pretty much a Valkyrie figure to come and intercede and give his wife an apple to eat. And that when she ate this apple, it would help her conceive. Um, And so she did, but you know, because it's a mythological birth, you have 
him sitting in there for six months, just or six years, my bad, cooking pretty much. And then he comes out as a fully grown man, pretty much. Well, not fully grown man, but six years old. He's already aged that much. And uh, he's already exceptional as soon as he comes out. That's one of the main things that happen with these heroes is, you know, from the very start that they're going to be amazing and important. Yeah, it's just, um, yeah, those those attributes of strength and those, like you said, miraculous births. And I suppose this even sets it up for the next progression in the storyline is he makes that promise to his mother where, um, and I really should have a copy of the book in front of me, but it's actually on my shelf behind me. But if I'm just paraphrasing here, uh, doesn't he say something to his mother like um, something like I will die by fire and iron? And then he has this strong attribute uh, of you know, and then we can talk about his descendants a little bit. And of course, the the great tree that renders up in the hall, you know, Barnstock and when Odin comes in. So if we want to talk about the next natural progression, we can we can then do that. All right. So when when Volsung was fully grown, I suppose that's where we're, we're going to start yes. then, isn't it? We're going to skip to when he was grown. So uh, when he was fully grown, he actually married the wish maiden that helped him become an existence and uh which is contributing to that mythological foundation of how this family is just blessed with by the gods pretty much so he marries this valkyrie pretty much wish maiden and they build a great hall and what's i just love this hall because there is a giant tree in the middle of it and uh it stood in the hall with its branches spreading out and blooming and they called this tree Barnstoker, which literally just means child stock or something like that. <laughs> it's kind of funny, and it doesn't actually explain what the meaning comes from, but a few scholars have thought it, it's probably linked to Yggdrasil, the uh, tree of life in Norse mythology. And it's not surprising when Odin comes in that that connection is definitely made, because in the following chapter, we have a feast going on. And uh, I think now is probably a good time to mention the... Uh, children of Volsung, because now they're going to come in and take over the uh, prominence of the story. So they have, I think, 12 children and one, or 12 sons and one daughter, but only two of them actually are important enough to get names, at least in this saga. There are actually two twins, a son named Sigmund and a daughter named Signy. And one day, a king named King Sigir comes to the hall from another kingdom, and he comes to ask for Signy's hand in marriage. Of course, Signy doesn't actually want to do this, and it's never a good sign when a woman doesn't want to get into marriage and ends up forced in one she doesn't want to. In the sagas, it's usually a sign of bad things to come. So what happens is that they're having a feast to celebrate this marriage that Signy didn't want. And in the middle of the feast, a mysterious old man comes into the hall. What happens next, I think, is just best told by the saga. So I'm going to read it straight out of it. It is now told that when people were sitting by the fires in the evening, a man came into the hall. He was not known to the men by sight. He was dressed in this way. He wore a molted cape that was hooded. He was barefoot and had linen breeches tied around his legs. As he walked up to Barnstock, he held a sword in his hand, while over his head was a low-hanging hook. He was very tall and gray with age, and he had only one eye. He brandished the sword and thrust it into the trunk so that it sank up to the hilt. Words of welcome failed everybody. Then the man began to speak. He who draws this sword out of the trunk shall receive it from me as a gift, and he himself shall prove that he has never carried a better sword than this one. 
So, of course, what follows is what you can expect. A hall full of warriors who think they're the best thing that's ever happened in this world compete over who's going to pull it out. And they all try, but of course, they all fail except Sigmund, the one who's descended from Odin himself. Oh, and I guess if no one guessed, that was Odin. If you're really familiar with your mythology, you'd pick up on that because as soon as it mentions the one eye, but no one else knows that this is Odin. You just kind of supposed to figure it out as you read. So Sigmund's the one who pulls out the sword. And King Sigir, who's his new brother-in-law, is jealous and immediately offers to buy the sword for gold. He says, I'll offer you triple the weight of the sword and gold. But Sigmund answers, and I, I love this line as well, so I'll read it from the saga. This is Sigmund's reply. You could have taken this sword from where it stood, no less than I did, if it were meant for you to carry it. But now that it has come first into my hands, you will never obtain it, even should you offer me all the gold you own. So King Sigir leaves very upset, and it's a sign of worse trouble to come for this family. Yeah, that's sort of a disrespectful thing to do, isn't it? When he offers to buy the the sword from Sigmund, right? And doesn't he say something in there like, again, I'm paraphrasing, but because he even tries to pull it out himself of the, the great tree that uh, renders up through the central part of the hall is, um, you know, if you, essentially if you were worthy enough to pull the sword out, then you would obviously have possession of the sword. And he leaves very abruptly and very uh, unusually. And then of, because, of course, they were at a feast in the Great Hall, and he uh, even invites Sigmund to come to his own hall for a feast at a later time, if I'm correct. Well, see, in, when you're at a feast, the proper etiquette, usually you do leave, you give gifts to people when they leave, but asking to buy something that you just heard was only the man who can pull this out is chosen to have the sword, and immediately after that, offering to buy it. You're obviously not worthy for the sword, and it was kind of, I'm sure it was taken as an insult, because he was not chosen, and the sword is not meant for him. And that's why Sigmund lays him out real quick and tells him, you're not supposed to have this sword, because you could have pulled it out just as easily as I did if it was. And it is a bit of a disrespectful thing, but he does hold his tongue while he's there, so he doesn't look very disrespectful in front of everybody else. But it says that same evening, he was immediately thinking about how to get revenge for an he felt he was dishonored for being denied such a good deal because getting getting three times the weight of the sword and gold is actually a pretty good deal, but per- perhaps not when it comes to a magical sword given to you by a god. Yeah, yeah, and, and this is sort of Excalibur King Arthur-ish, isn't it? Because like, I suppose <laughs> in other yes. medieval literature, and I don't know if there's this in other mythologies, I would have to do more research, but there is uh, a great deal of significance in these magical swords, isn't there? Oh, there definitely is. And uh, there's magical weapons of all sorts in different uh, mythological traditions. I know my favorite is Ku Holland yeah. from the Irish traditions. He's got a special spear called Gay Bolg, and uh, he can do a special move with it. And it's one of his signature things to have that weapon. And uh, he's actually pretty similar to Sigurd. And we can talk about that when we get to him. But magical swords in the right hands is a very important thing. It's nothing to take lightly when someone has a sword like that. And it, it does... Something that these weapons do is it, it's it's a sign of that person's going to have victory, especially when it's given to you by Odin. The whole point that he was that Odin was making when he said that uh, he himself shall prove that he has never carried a better sword than this one, and that it's a gift from Odin himself. And it's another way of saying your family will have victory. The significance of of these magical 
weapons. Yeah, it's just it's so interesting. And the next part of the story, I suppose, is where things get uh, very interesting when uh, Sigmund and his family are invited to Sigair's Hall to ha- come to to the feast. And I believe is it Sigmund's sister who is called Signy is actually uh, betrothed to um, Sigair. Is that correct? Yes, despite despite her reluctance and yeah. consistent pleading to her family that this is right, a yeah, idea. just like we said before, is um, again uh, against her will to get married. But this is thing where things get interesting because I suppose if one tries to think about it, uh, it's only natural that um, something bad is about to ensue after the abrupt leaving of the feast at um, the great hall with the the great tree in it. So I suppose what happens next. You know, and I, this is where things get really interesting. And, and I just love the, the events of this. I think it's so interesting. And Sigir's mom, the, the she-wolf who, you know, maybe she's even a woman and then turns into a wolf at nighttime. But this, this when I first read this saga, this was one of my favorite parts, at least in the beginning. So, yeah, if we want to just keep progressing with the storyline and just cover uh, as much of the beginning of the saga anyways as we can. So what happens next is uh, Sigir and Signy go back to his kingdom, and they lay together and consummate the marriage. And Sigir, who has been plotting his revenge, is planning to invite all of the Volsung's sons to his hall for a feast. Signy knows that this is a bad idea, and she's like, look, we got to do something. You can't come to this. And she devises a way, I think it's actually at this part, where she has a she carves runes on something and tries to send it to her, her uh, brothers to try and tell them not to come, but it gets intercepted and altered. Signy knew this was a bad idea, so she tried to warn her family not to come. But, of course, the Volsungs were like, we must uphold this marriage. It is very important that we make sure this marriage goes well and that our families come together and avoid conflict. Of course, we the readers already know that this is impossible because King Sigar is jealous and wants to bring the destruction on the Volsungs for not getting the sword. So, the, But the Volsungs, they come anyway despite Signy's pleas for them not to, and King Sigir has a trap waiting for them and ends up trapping them all outside tied to poles, and every night, for nine nights, a she-wolf comes and eats one, eats one each night, until it's just Sigmund left. Wow. Yeah, and that's where it gets interesting because um, there's sort of this interesting relationship that Signy has to her husband Sigir in that she, this is jumping ahead, but later in the saga, we see that she is rather loyal to her, her husband, despite how much she, you know, tries to, it's, it's like she tries to kill him indirectly. Whereas although she, you know, (laughs) stands by her, her husband and, you know, loves him unconditionally or or whatever, she's always sort of funding and, and helping her, her brothers and and her family to uh, eventually, you know, get, get revenge and, and kill him. So I guess that when, what happens next is when Sigmund is the only one left uh, tied up and about to be eaten, uh, then what happens? Then she goes and covers him in honey. Signy covers Sigmund in honey. And then what happens next is, is quite an interesting twist to the story. All right. So Signy definitely did give him a honey, like a, ren- a remedy of honey, which would kind of cause the uh, she-wolf to lick Sigmund. And that would give Sigmund a chance to grab the tongue so tightly that he tear it 
he tears it out by the roots and it's it's kind of a a gross scene if you're a queasy one but uh he pretty much kills her by ripping out the she-wolf's tongue it's pretty fantastic because he's tied to a pole and he manages to wriggle out and rip out her tongue but that's how you kill people who use witchcraft and sorcery you just do whatever you can yeah that's true yeah because she put honey inside of his mouth and when she was finished licking his body you know all the honey on him uh then she uh when he opened up his mouth, revealing even more of the the honey, um, start, began to lick, and then he, of course, uh, ripped out her tongue, thus breaking him free at the same time. So, for anyone listening, if you ever find yourself strapped to a pole in the middle of the night and attacked by a she wolf, make sure you have honey and be prepared to bite her tongue off, because it's the way you're going to get out. That's true. Yeah, there's definitely a lot of wisdom in these sagas. <laughs> Depends how you're looking at them. So now at this point, Sigmund goes and hides in a cave, pretty much. And Signy plots her revenge against Sigir. Uh, this is when she definitely is no longer very loyal to her husband. Because she's constantly trying to find ways to get him killed by using Sigmund. And I think this this is uh, the part where uh, things get a little bit incestuous between them. They try to preserve the family line right because then Signy has obviously children with her husband the evil Sigir and of course they're weak and at this point uh Sigmund who has just broken free from the you know being tied up in tied to a tree uh tied up in these stocks whatever you want to call it uh he's basically living in the forest perhaps a little turf house or something where his Sister Signy is bringing him food occasionally and everything like that. But then uh, when her children come of age, her her two boys, I believe it's when they are each 10 years old, she brings them uh, first, you know, she brings them one at a time to go train uh, with with Sigmund so that they might become strong warriors. Yeah, it's actually pretty symbolic that she's taking her children with Sigir to her brother Sigmund. Yeah to train how to kill Sigir. Like he's going to get killed by his own bond with her. Like the, the bond that was supposed to bring these families together is actually, she's Signy's trying to work it to kill Sigir. So it's just falling apart at this point. And she does bring the boys. And I think we should mention how she tests these boys or how Sigmund tests these boys to make sure they're, they're uh, actually strong enough. And I think it's pretty hilarious. We don't actually find out why until a little bit later, but he has the boys make bread with some flour and they reach their hands in and the boys are like there's something moving in there i can't do it and that's when sigmund's like okay he's useless and uh for one of the boys signy actually tells sigmund to kill him to kill her own child because he was too weak to help them which is a pretty uh strong scene especially for a modern reader where it's like she's killing her own children because they were not good enough of course, the thing moving within the bag of flour is uh, a snake, which is sort of rather scary. And even I think it said before then, uh, before she even brought her her first boy to go train with Sigmund, uh, one of the ways that she tested them herself being, you know, a mighty Volsung um, is she sewed his clothing onto his skin and she would try to rip it off. And if he winced or, or you know, cried as it was painful, then uh, that's not a very manly Volsung thing to do. But then of course, yeah, uh, she brings her next child. And of course the first one's just killed. He's useless. Just get rid of him. Uh, she brings her next child. Same thing. 
is presented a bag of flour, asked to make bread, sees a snake, and then they kill him too. Uh, but then, yeah, like you said, you know, um, basically at this, and the reason why her children are so weak is obviously because they're only half Volsung. The other half is is um, Sigurd's regular uh, family line, not very strong and mighty. But then what happens next is, um, I believe, if my memory serves me correctly, she actually then sleeps with her brother Sigmund. But how she goes about this is, I believe there's a witch wandering the forest and she trades appearances with the Mm -hmm. witch. So she comes as a witch to Sigmund and receives uh, his hospitality, but also a perhaps a little bit more than his hospitality. And for three nights um, stays the night in in Sigmund's, you know, little turf house or something. And then of course she conceives with the child and eventually has the child. And uh, when the child comes of age, same thing. He is, his clothing is sewed to his skin, and when he when it is ripped off, um, he does not cry or wince because he is 100% Volsung. But then what happens next is, yeah, the same thing uh, with the whole test with the bag of flour is um, when he's training with Sigmund. And this, this child is, of course, Sinfjotli. Uh, when Sinfjotli presented the bag of flour with the snake inside, he actually, when he's kneading the flour into bread, uh, kneads the the poisonous snake in with the bread. And uh, of course, then when the bread is all ready to be eaten and it is presented to Sigmund, he's like, oh, you know, essentially you are a true, strong Volsung warrior. But of course, we can't eat this bread. So <laughs> I love how that's revealed, though, because Sig uh, Sinfjotli is so chill about it. Because when Sigmund comes and he's like, well, you, you yeah. made the bread. Did you notice anything odd about that flower? And S- Sinfield is like, I am not without suspicion that there was something alive in the flower when I first began kneading. But I have kneaded it in, whatever it was. Yeah. He didn't even care. He just like, I'm just going to make this in the bread, whatever it was. I know something was moving, but I'm such a hardcore warrior that I'm just going to eat it too. <laughs> the next part of the the saga what happens next is and this would sort of be in conclusion to the um first half of the saga concluding it and sort of marking that as the the end of the beginning of the saga is of course uh signy returns to her husband sigir and their two sons she has more kids her two sons are playing in the hallway of their Great Hall, if you would like to call it that. And Sinfjotli and Sigmund, the two mighty Volsung men, go inside and we hear that the the two boys are playing this uh, sort of, they're rolling these rings around, if if I'm correct, sort of like perhaps a, a game of marbles. And when one of the rings rolls out into the further down the hallway, the two boys see these strange men, of course, being Sigmund and Sinfjotli. So, so they go and get their mom, you know, Signy, who are these men? And of course, she knows exactly who they are. And I think then she asks Sigmund to kill the boys. But she's like, no, I can't kill your kids, sis. But uh, Sinfioli has no problem. He's like, yeah, I'll kill your kids. And then kills the two boys and throws their their uh, lifeless bodies in front of Sigir. And of course, then they is it I'm trying to think what goes next is they end up fighting and fighting. Uh, but they're, you know, with the um, warriors and guards or whatever, but they're eventually overwhelmed and, and thrown in 
is it uh, some sort of enclosure? Is it is it a is it like a, a pit with a rock rolled over top or, or something like that? Yeah, it's a sort of large cairn, like a a mound of rocks, and they're just stuck in the middle of it, and they can't get out of the rocks. So it's kind of like a little a cave, but made out of a stack of rocks, of big ones that they can't just lift out. Yeah, and then what happens next is um, as they are being placed inside of this uh, cave of rocks, this enclosure. Um, you know, um, Signy throws Sinfiotli and Sigmund a um, rack of ribs, uh, perhaps something that they can eat on. So at least they'll be able to stay alive for a little while longer. But as they're, you know, rummaging through the ribs and eating them inside of the stack of rocks, it is uh, inside that special sword, uh, which was placed in Barnstock by Odin himself you know, all of those weeks or months ago. And they actually, since the sword is magical, they actually use it to saw out of the mound of rocks that they were placed inside of. There's actually a poem a little bit that goes with the cutting of the rock. It's kind of funny because at least the poem makes it sound like it was just one slash and the rocks were cut. Because this is how the poem goes. They cut with might the massive slab, Sigmund with his sword and Sinfjotli. And there we go. It's cut out and they were free because that magical sword by Odin can do pretty much whatever you need it to. And then what happens next? Do, do they then proceed to kill Sigir? Yes. Uh, Sigmund uh, sets fire to Sigir's palace or hall. Um, they're telling Signy to come out while the fire is going. But Signy, she regrets what she's done because her role, well, for one, she regrets her incest. But we can get to that, justifying it a little bit rather than being completely appalled by it but she was she was appalled by it and she was also disgraced by the fact that she had to go against her husband even though it wasn't really her fault so she feels this regret for what she's done to save her family even though she was justified there was a lot of bad things she had to do along the way so she throws herself into the fire and dies with Sigir so Sigmund kind of he just later rules over Sigir's kingdom and he remarries and they have two more children and we end up following his son Helgi at this point for a little bit. Like I said, and folks, um, I really do implore you to read this saga and I will put a link to it in the description below. I of course use Biox translation right now. Um, so does Fjorn here uh, just because it's the one so that I had lying around the house. Uh, but Jackson Crawford, as mentioned in our last episode, also has a translation of the Saga of the Volsungs, which is uh, written in contemporary English. So it's very easy to understand for people who are not familiar with Norse literature, which is awesome. Either way, seriously, I do implore you to check out these books. If not, I'm sure you can find a free PDF online or probably could even find it at your library. So, and yeah, I'd love to hear sort of what you get out of it, what you encounter. So feel free to message me on Twitter about your exciting findings or uh, email me either way. It'd be awesome to hear from you, but I suppose next it's just impossible to include everything in the saga. There's so many great tales and great stories, but I suppose that was the beginning of the saga. We went from the very beginning with the emergence of Volsung, uh, the descendant of Odin, uh, right up until uh, everything that happened with his kids and his descendants, right up until Sigair's death burning inside of his own hall. That sort of blood feud is now coming to a close in a way. Uh, but fast forwarding to the end 
of the saga when uh, the great sword is is shattered upon the battlefield. Yeah, if you just want to sort of take it from there. All right, here we go. Okay, so since we're fast forwarding, um, Sigmund is in battle with another king at this point, later down the road, and uh, he's fighting in his old age at this point, but he's still wielding that sword given to him by Odin. But, of course, victory does not last forever, and a warrior, a true warrior, does not die of old age. So it is about time that Sigmund passes the baton, or the sword in this case, down to the next generation, even though we've been through a few. And so when he's in the middle of battle, a man once again comes that no one knows. He had a wide-brimmed hat that slooped over his face, and he wore a black hooded cloak. He had one eye, and he held a spear in his hand. This man came up against King Sigmund, raised the spear before him. When Sigmund struck hard with his sword, it broke into two against the spear. Then the tide of battle turned, for King Sigmund's luck was now gone, and many of his men fell. The king did not seek to protect himself, and fiercely urged his men on. So Sigmund has come to his end. Odin has denied him victory, but he has gotten his glorious death in battle. But the sword is shattered, so now... We have no magical sword, and our main protagonist is now out of the saga. So now we move on to the next stage, where we move to the next generation, which is Sigurd, the dragon slayer, which this saga really comes, which really centers around him. And something I probably should have mentioned earlier is that sagas like this, even because this was written in Iceland in the 13th century, and others of different genres are similar to this in the sense that a saga... The, the person that a saga is really about sometimes comes very late in a saga. And in this case, it's chapter 13, 12, before we actually get Sigurd. So we're already a third through the saga before the real main character comes and the real story. And what these generational stories do is that they tell the, the story of the, dis, uh, the ancestors of the main hero that we're going to talk about. And it mirrors, it usually generally reflects and mirrors what the later generations go through. So it may seem pointless to talk about all these people in the past and then finally getting to Sigurd, who's the real interest of the saga. But it's really telling that story of how generational cycle of how things keep happening. So we're finally at Sigurd, which is the real height of the saga, even though it's well well into the saga already. But it, everything is relevant and it will continue to be relevant if you keep it in mind as you read. We skipped a lot of stuff in the middle, of course, because we fast forwarded to the end. But there's, of course, I believe it's Sinfjotli. Is it, does, doesn't he like go to Valhalla or something? But, and I could be wrong, but isn't he the only character in either Norse myth and the sagas that goes to be with Odin in his hall without dying? Oh, well, he, I think if um, there is a moment of treachery, Sinfjotli wanted to marry someone but someone else wanted to marry them too. And Sinfjotli was a bit of a, a bit of a jerk, honestly. Most of the good heroes really are jerks. And I don't know if we'll be able to talk about it this time, but they sometimes are really, really rude because they're just so awesome and so powerful that they kind of talk crappy to people. But anyway, Sinfjotli gets into some trouble and uh, he ends up drinking a horn full of poison. It, as the saga says, in a brilliant short statement, Sinfjotli drank it and at once fell to the ground. He's done. That's it. That's it. Lights out. Wow. Yeah, there's just so much to to talk about. And actually, it's interesting that you mentioned that uh, the sort of jerk 
jerkness of the like heroes on the sagas because I was actually just listening to um, my good friends uh, Luke and Dan over at the Northern Myths podcast. Their most recent episode was the Scrimness Mall, and um, they were talking about Frey or Froy or however you want to say it in Old Norse, um, the great fertility god. Um, uh, he, of course, and I'll I won't give the episode away, but uh, he, you know, we often associate fertility with being such a positive thing, you know, bringing new life and having lots of adorable babies and um, great harvests and abundant fields and crops. We often associate fertility as such a positive thing, but actually, it was sort of his fertility attribute that <laughs> that got him into a bit of trouble. Again, just talking about the. Uh, jerkness of these people. And it's interesting if I would have gone in back in time, if I had a time machine and I, I would have met some of the Vikings, particularly the male Vikings, wonder if they would have been jerks themselves because uh, these, these sorts of pieces of literature and stories really had great influence on their lives. Mm-hmm. And there's, if you read a lot of the sagas, you will get some very rude jerky main characters, even in the sagas of the Icelanders, which is a little less mythological. I know one of the poet sagas, Cormac saga. He's a really, he's a piece of work. He's one of those characters, but he gets a saga about him. Or oh, and there's another saga, um, Henthorir saga. Wow. He's a jerk too, but you're not supposed to actually like him. Wow. <laughs> but the saga's named after him. He gets a saga, but he's a real jerk. And like, I guess you just see this in Norse literature in general is even like, um, Odin, right? Thanks to Marvel and other influences, we oftentimes uh, envision Odin as being this soft, quiet, gentle old man with, you know, uh, gorgeous white hair and he's just nice to people. When in reality, Odin is uh, sort of a trickster himself. And he's, you know, all he cares about really is building up an army because he will die at mm-hmm. Ragnarok is building up an army of men to be his warriors and, and train with him in Valhalla for that that great day of Ragnarok when there will be this epic battle. So, yeah, Odin, uh, not the nice, gentle old man that we would like to think. You just see that there's so many misconceptions about the characters in Norse myth oh, no. and um I mean, I'm sure a lot of it is because of pop culture, but also just sort of our natural inclinations to think that way. And Loki is usually the the trickster. Uh, but actually, I would make a case for Loki, I would say. Um, although he is uh, very tricky and even, you know, nasty sometimes, like what he was uh, harassing Thor's wife, Sif, is it? But honestly, like he's very resourceful. Um, although he is tricky, he um, a lot of his his things end up helping the gods at the end of the day. But uh, yeah, just yeah, super super interesting stuff. Gosh, and of course yeah, this saga as well. And I suppose maybe out of a it. good way to end it would be talking about. I'm just looking at my copy in my hands, and it says the saga of the Volsungs, the legend of Sigurd the Dragon Slayer and the Magic Ring of Power. And it has this image of this giant dragon uh, sitting atop a mound of gold. And of course, that sounds very similar to the Hobbit and the great dragon and the magic ring of power. So there's a lot of influence there. I'm guessing Tolkien got a lot of inspiration from Norse literature. Yes, definitely. This and Beowulf, especially for the dragon. Fjord, thank you so much for joining me today. It was really a, a treat to be able to have you on. Like I said, your your blog, Fjorn's Hall, 
I reference it so much and I do implore people to check that out. Um, so I'll put all sorts of links in the description below. I'll put links to the Saga of the Volsungs, two different translations. I'll put a link to uh, Fjorn's awesome uh, Norse history blog. Fjorn, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me. It was an honor, my friend. If you enjoyed this episode of the History of Vikings, do me a favor and write me a review. It would be awesome if you would write me a review because it's so, so important. You tend to rank very well if you have a lot of reviews. So uh, you can always feel free to contact me via my email address, which is noah at thehistoryofvikings.com. Big things are coming on the History of Vikings, including an awesome YouTube channel. So be sure to check that out. Thank you all so much for joining me on another epic episode of the History of Vikings.